0: Good morning. Good morning. Had a great week this past week of VBS, and uh, it's always amazing just kind of watch how everything fits together. It so always, always goes great. So appreciate Audra's work in that and getting it all planned and scheduled and everything that takes place with it. Just usually, almost always goes off without a hitch. But through the course of the week, as I was prepping for Sunday school, if you have studied your Sunday school lesson like good students should, thank you for that, okay. (laughs) You'll know that today we're studying Joshua and the Israelites going to Jericho and that first battle in the Promised Land. And I love that account in the scriptures. I love Joshua's courage. I love God's plan. An unusual plan that probably seemed absurd to a lot of people. And I got to thinking, I'm just going to preach on that. I'm going to preach on our Sunday school lesson today. So if you're a teacher and you didn't have much time to prepare, take notes. All right? Get ready. It's just kidding. So. Anyway, we're in Joshua chapter 5 and 6 today in the Old Testament. Last week's Sunday school lesson, if you were here, Israel crossed the Jordan River. When the feet of the priests that carried the Ark of the Covenant stepped into the waters of the Jordan, which was at flood stage, the waters parted. God heaped them up in a pile to the north at a place called Adam or Adam, and the rest flowed to the south right into the Dead Sea, and the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River on dry ground just as they had crossed through the waters of the Red Sea when they came out of Egypt. So virtually nothing remained before the campaign for possession of the promised land would begin. War was looming just hours ahead of them. Behind the masses of God's people, the Jordan River had resumed its flood stage flowing. So pretty much blocked all retreat going back across. I doubt that God would have parted the waters for them to have retreated. Before them rose the mighty walls of Jericho. Her gates were sealed tight, her men of war on the walls. They are in a state of fear and trembling, according to what Rahab told the spies. Most of the Israelites had probably never seen a fortified city like Jericho. Remember, this is the next generation of people that God brought there because the previous generation died out in the wilderness. Uh, With what we know of the lack of faith, the obstinance of the Israelites at time, I would imagine there was some fear that was running high in the Israelite camp, in spite of all the great things that God had done for them. Humanly speaking, Joshua bore all the responsibility of the leadership of these people. Don't you think he would have liked to have talked to Moses at this point? You know, just as what would you do? But Moses wasn't there to talk to. God had taken him on to be with himself. So Joshua had sole authority. So he decided to get away to pray and meditate and plan this conquest. So he snuck out of camp in the darkness to view Jericho for himself and to seek God's guidance. In chapter 5, verse 13... It says, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho. And the word for by is a Hebrew word that means close proximity. The idea of immediate proximity. Joshua snuck out went out of the Israelite camp and went over in the immediate proximity of Jericho by himself. All right. He's there. He, He remains there in the night brooding, meditating, patrolling, his eyes open wide to the darkness, and then he detects some movement. And what he saw next set his heart racing and his adrenaline pumping because he saw a warrior in full battle dress with sword drawn and gleaming there maybe in the moonlight. I think a less courageous man would have ran in fear. We would have bolted, but not Joshua. His hand probably was upon his own sword, and he strode forward. And he called out to this menacing figure, Are you for us or our enemies, our adversaries? In other words, which side are you on? Ours or theirs? Because if you're on their side, it's man on man, steel on steel. You better get ready. Now, there was no way that Joshua could have anticipated what lay ahead of him. He certainly didn't know that the next few minutes are going to become a spiritual milestone in his life. And his challenge, are, are you for us or for our enemies, was met by an answer that put Joshua flat on his face in worship. Because the answer came, neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. Wow. I believe that this commander of the army of the Lord was what we call a theophany. A theophany, an appearance of God in the form of an angelic messenger, a theophany. In fact, God had told Moses, back in the book of Exodus, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will fight for you. And I believe that this is that very messenger, the commander of the army of God. I'm, com- I'm convinced of this for several reasons. First, Joshua is, c- is commanded to take off his sandals. If you continue reading there, the very same command had been given to Moses by God from the burning bush. God had said, take off your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy ground. Same thing Joshua is told. Then God had said to Moses, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at that point, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And so I think Joshua realized through the command to take off his sandals that this commander was the same God that had spoken to Moses. But secondly, the commander who spoke to Joshua in chapter 6 and verse 2 is identified as the Lord. It says, Then the Lord said... Joshua, And thirdly, Joshua knew not only that he was of God, but that he was God. Because I don't think Joshua would have worshipped him had he not recognized him to be God. So those three reasons convinced me that the commander of the army of the Lord was God in angelic form, in messenger form. The angel of the Lord. So this commander and this, this encounter with God served to prepare Joshua and arm him for the conquering of Jericho in some very specific ways. He, he saw not only that God was with him, but God's appearance with his sword pulled from his scabbard and held ready for battle. I think that was indelibly printed on Joshua's mind. He knew God was going to fight for him. And he knew that whatever the enemy mobilized against them, that was going to be matched and exceeded by a heavenly army. And also this encounter with God left Joshua prepared and ready because it fully informed him regarding what God wanted him to do in taking Jericho. So in chapter 6 and verse 2, it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up every man straight in. Now what was the effect of all this upon Joshua? Well, in a word, it produced that bedrock faith that introduces Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And Joshua had incredible visual certainty for right now he had seen the unseen. And his conviction regarding the invisible, what he couldn't see, is going to be with him in every battle. He's going to know God is right there. But he also had an incredible future certainty regarding what he hoped for, namely the fall of Jericho and the taking of the Promised Land. He was sure those walls would fall, and that dual certainty made him the great general and commander that he became. And his certainty enabled him to lead Israel to victory. And here once again, I've got to emphasize that just like Moses had believing parents, and Moses himself believed, one person's faith can make all the difference for God's people. Because as we'll see, Joshua's faith was communicated to the people of Israel, and it elevated the entire nation's faith. And your faith can do the same thing. Your faith, one person's faith, can elevate the faith of the entire church. No matter where we're planted, whether it's behind a machine or a desk or a steering wheel or in a house, if we live a life of certainty regarding God's word and God's promises, we can elevate and energize others to live the way they should. One person's faith can make all the difference. And so that morning is... The bright rays of the sun illuminated the thousands of tents of the Israelites in their camp. Joshua knew what he had to do, and in the days that followed, he did it. The writer of Hebrews tells us in a simple sentence that by faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. And folks, that's the key to this whole message. It's the key to our Sunday school lesson today. The walls of Jericho fell because of the faith of Joshua and his people. That's the key. It was the greatest corporate act of faith in Israel's history, and I don't think it's ever been exceeded. And as such, it presents us some lessons to be learned. I want to give you three of them, and here they are. Number one, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. God Himself had given these explicit instructions to Joshua. It demanded implicit obedience. These instructions detailed the order and the conduct of the famous procession around Jericho. The precise order was, you put soldiers out in front, then seven priests carrying seven ram's horns called shofars, then, significantly, in the middle, the Ark of the Covenant on the shoulders of more priests, then the people... Then, finally, the rear guard of soldiers. Now, the conduct of this unusual procession was likewise carefully specified. During the first six days, you're to march around the walls once each day, maintaining absolute silence while the priests would blare intermittently on their shofars. But on the seventh day, they were to maintain silence as they circled the walls seven times until Joshua gave the command to shout. Now, by any outside estimation, those instructions were ridiculous, right? Just absurd. I mean, you don't conquer an enemy that way. You conquer an enemy by force. You bombard the city walls. You scale the walls by ladders and ropes. You smash the gates with battering rams. You take troops and you kill them by the sword. You don't take a city by priests making bad music on ram's horns. That's just not the way you do it And don't you think that those Canaanites, those people in Jericho were probably hooting and hollering on the wall and making cat calls and thinking what, what, what a group of clowns And maybe even some of the Hebrews themselves agreed But though the instructions look foolish from human logic, Israel as a corporate body believed. Why this uncharacteristic faith? These people at times have been obstinate, stiff-necked, rebellious in the wilderness, wanderings, complaining. Why this faith now? Well, maybe because of their recent experience in watching the Jordan River dry up when the priest stepped into the water with the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe that recent miracle made them receptive to faith But I think the biggest reason was simply the faith and character of Joshua. His faith and his certainty, I think, energized the entire nation. So Israel really did believe God was going to give them Jericho. And when the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell, I don't believe it's simply referring to the faith of Joshua. I think it's referring to the faith of the Israelite nation. They weren't pretending to believe it wasn't a fake faith. They really had faith in that. And as they marched silently around the wall, they believed the walls would come tumbling down and their faith pleased God because they were willing, as it says in Hebrews 11, verse 6, believing that God exists and that He's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek Him. What evidence do we have that they believe God? Well, the evidence is obvious. They did what he said. The obedience of faith, folks. It's a little after dawn. The sun is lifted above the horizon. Joshua has assembled the elders, given them the instructions from God. They're moving quickly throughout the camp, calling the people together. And soon, this long procession began to wind from the camp. They made their way towards the wall city of Jericho. It's broken, the sound, the silence, broken only by the sound of the priests blowing the shafars. The trip from their camp at Gilgal to Jericho would take about two hours, although Jericho itself could be encircled in about 25 to 30 minutes. Joshua kept the Israelites probably well beyond the range of any archers that might have tried to shoot at them from the wall of Jericho. And Israel never broke silence. This strange parade continued It's an absurd procession for six consecutive days. Maybe the enemy was shouting on the wall. But I would imagine the grim silence of those circling fools, as they probably thought, began to wear on them. But again, don't miss the lesson being taught here. A life of faith is evidenced by a life of obedience to God's Word, even when it seems absurd. Paul comments in his second letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, he writes, For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Boy, you can say that again in regards to this in- encounter. Because to the unbelieving mind, the weapons we use as Christians appear not only useless, but ridiculous. Whoever stormed a walled city wearing truth for his war belt, righteousness for a breastplate, the good news for shoes, and faith for a shield, and salvation for a helmet, and the Bible for a sword. Come on, those, those are weapons of clowns and fools. So the world thinks. But God gives us directions in His Word on how to meet our Jericho's instructions that are foolishness to human logic. Let me give you some examples. A man is filling out his income tax form. He realizes that if he lists his extra hidden income, it'll put him in a higher tax bracket, and he won't have the money to pay his taxes. So he's up against a dark wall indeed, and he's got a choice to make. Do what's logical, like everyone else does, or be absolutely truthful, trusting God to take care of him. What does he choose? A student is doing poorly in class, needs a B to get into grad school, but as he works on the final exam, he realizes it's not going to happen. But then he realizes and notices that an A student sitting across from him is working in such a way that he can read all of his answers without being seen, without being detected. What should he do? Rationalize and say, God provides. Or be a fool and fix his eyes on his own miserable failing paper and trust God to work things out as he sees fit. Maybe you've been wronged by an enemy. Now you have the chance to get revenge and you'll never know who did it. That person will never know. Everyone would applaud you for it if they knew that you did it and did get revenge. And you know you can get away with it without being detected, but you remember the words of Jesus You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Will you join the fool's parade and actually pray a blessing on the one that has wronged you? You see, the scriptures reveal a spiritual law. Disobedience reveals our unbelief. Obedience to God reveals our faith. It's an evidence of our faith, and when difficult circumstances come upon us, unbelief draws from the arsenals of the world, whereas faith causes us to take up the armor of God and join that absurd march around Jericho. What Jerichos are facing you? What are you up against? And are you wavering between God's way and the world's way of meeting that Jericho? Do you believe God's word? The authenticity of your faith will be determined by the weapon that you choose. It's the obedience of faith. But notice, secondly, the focus of our faith. You see, the centerpiece of the narrative here is the golden Ark of the Covenant, God's presence. If you read through the whole account, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned no less than 11 times. The ark was carried, as we've noted, in the exact middle of the procession with the priest shofars blasting constantly as heralds of God's presence. That's what shofars were used for. We noted them back when they were at Mount Sinai. The shofars blew then to announce the presence of God. So it was God's presence that circled Jericho those seven days. It was His presence that would bring its fall. And Israel, believed, was aware that God was with them, leading them. They're not just pretending or imagining that he was there. God was truly present. But he manifested himself especially through the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And the realization that he was physically right there in their midst had a massive impact on the faith of the Israelites. I think that's what we all need. A sense that God is always present with us that it'll enable us to conquer whatever opposition confronts us. Think about it. If we right now, this morning, on a Sunday morning, had the ability to see the unseen like Joshua was permitted, don't you think we might see some angels sitting right here in our midst? right beside us. And maybe if the preaching were good, we might even see those angels with their Bibles out, listening intently. Because Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.12 that even angels long to look into these things, these matters of salvation. And the writer of Hebrews says, "...are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation?" The focus of our faith. And so as the Israelites encircled Jericho, the Canaanites saw nothing more than a ragtag group of people carrying this golden box. But the Israelites saw the unseen. Their focus was on God. They knew God's special presence was with them, went with them. That's the focus of faith to believe that God is there, He's with you, and He'll never leave you or depart from you. And that's the focus that'll bring down your Jerichos, the walls of the enemy. But lastly, notice this declaration of faith. A declaration of faith. It had to be very difficult for the Israelites to keep silent during those first six days. Their enemies, I doubt, practiced any such restraint. Not one stone in the walls had loosened. There were no cracks in the city walls yet, and the enemy was far from surrendering. So it must have been a great relief to the Israelites on the seventh day, when after the priest's ram's horns had blown that long call, Joshua ordered them to shout, and they finally shouted. And beginning in verse 15, it says... On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest shouted the trumpet blast, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that's in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies that we sent." (coughs) And when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people shouted, the wall collapsed, every man charged in, and they took the city. That was the voice of faith. The outward expression of the Israelites' inward confidence in the power of God. Conquering faith declares itself. It makes itself known. Faith that doesn't do that isn't faith at all. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 and verse 10, Romans 10 verse 10, It is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. A declaration of faith. A confession of faith. Job 19, 25-27, Job declared his faith, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end He'll stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, for I myself will see Him. Folks, the lips declare what's inside. What do your lips say about your faith? And that had to have been some shout there at Jericho. All their repressed human emotions came forth in a cry, heard all the way back to their camp at Gilgal. The walls come tumbling down. Literally, the scripture says, the wall fell in its place. They had a retaining wall at the body of Jericho, which they have excavated, archaeologists have found to this day. But the wall that was built upon the retaining wall above is what fell and collapsed and came down and basically formed a ramp that they could go right up over the retaining wall, right on up into the city and take the city. And they destroyed it, they killed them all, and they burnt it. And they took nothing except for one man, which in Sunday school you'll study next week. So what have we learned today? Number one, true faith obeys God and His Word, even when it seems absurd and foolish. It rejects the world's weapons and takes up the ridiculous armor of God. It marches confidently in a fool's army all the way to victory. Secondly, true faith focuses upon God, sees the unseen, cultivates a special sense of His presence, that He is with His people And we refuse to divert our focus away from Him. And lastly, true faith declares itself to a fallen world. Our lips will declare the faith that is inside of us. So how is your faith? These things happened as an example for us who still fight the battles of faith. And by learning from their example... We can achieve victory in the Lord as well, and God can cause some impossible walls to tumble down in front of us. What Jericho's are you facing? And will you follow God with the obedience of faith, with your focus upon Him, and declaring that faith to others? If you have a decision that you'd like to make today, a decision of faith in the Lord, Faith in God, if you want to make that decision public, you may be down front as we sing this grand old hymn, Faith is the Victory.